When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Unlike the last two podcasts, we're not going to spend the whole time talking about COVID. But given what's happened in the last few days in a number of countries, we are going to mention it. But we're going to try and keep this one brief. In the UK, of course, they've announced more or less a full reopening from the 19th of July. And that comes at a time when their daily case rate is shooting up. The government has told us they expect 25,000 a day at the moment, well, it's 25 to 30,000 a day at the moment to be about 50,000 on that reopening. And the health sec- the new health secretary, Sajid Javed, has said that over the summer cases could reach 100,000 a day. If it got to that level, that would be the highest of the pandemic by my reading of the data. And so that is quite incredible, really. They obviously believe that, or at least one might infer they believe that the connection between hospitalizations and death has been weakened. It certainly hasn't been broken because even today we've seen a further uptick in those hospitalizations and deaths. So it's a big gamble. And that even for somebody that has been quite supportive of the idea of reopening as fast as possible, it's certainly given the numbers have certainly given me pause for thought. But the UK has been described, uh, I've seen it in the Irish media today, as being alone standing alone with these policies. Um, it, it isn't actually, because uh, as some of us will have noticed in the last couple of weeks, Singapore are adopting a very similar strategy based on the idea that the connection between cases and hospitalizations and death has been weakened, if not broken. And they've actually announced that they intend very soon not to even publish 
daily case data because uh, they, uh, in the words of one health official there, uh, we don't publish daily data on colds. So why should we do it for this? The only thing that matters, he went on to say, is those hospitalizations and those deaths. So it's a big call. Those numbers of 50,000 to 100,000 in, in, in the UK would be orders of magnitude bigger than the figure that has been publicized in Ireland over the last day or two, which is people worrying that cases could reach 1,000 or more quite soon in Ireland. If if the UK's case numbers are going up to 100,000, then Ireland will be about four or six weeks behind because the, the, the driver, the Delta variant, is the single common factor there. So it's a stark bet that the UK is making. I must say I, I'm, I'm nervous about it. I certainly hope, obviously, I hope that it succeeds. One of the interesting countries as well that is not planning to reopen anytime soon, at least to international visitors, is China, because they've announced that they are building a brand new quarantine centre. And it's going to be 250,000 square metres, which is the size of 46 football fields. And it's a quarantine facility to house all international arrivals to China, which essentially is just going to be Chinese nationals going home, one, one assumes, because the country, China is going to stay closed till at least the spring of next year to international visitors. And that's despite the relative success that they had with suppressing the virus. But one factor I don't think has received an awful lot of publicity is that they're using the locally produced vaccine, the locally discovered vaccine, which doesn't appear to be to have as nearly as much efficacy as the stuff we're using in this part of the world, or indeed that they're using in Singapore. Lots of different countries doing different things, Jim. Yeah, it's a, it's a market picture, Chris. Uh, Russia has the highest ever number of fatalities yesterday. Uh, the African situation is deteriorating. So it's, uh, but then on the other hand, we had Biden at the weekend coming out saying, that the United States has achieved independence from the coronavirus. And here in Ireland, the NEFIS is talking about a thousand daily case numbers by November, or sorry, by July 19th, when international travel is set to resume. So it's, it's a really confusing picture. As you say, one certainly hopes that the relationship between the cases and hospitalization stroke death um, is is breaking down. That would be the hope, uh, but it's it's obviously a risky strategy. Um, from the it's amazing to hear the general reaction to what Boris Johnson has done. Um, it is quite negative, but I kind of feel that if Boris did anything, there'd be a negative reaction to it at this stage. Um, he kind of falls into the same category as Trump at this stage. For those who didn't like Trump, he could do nothing right. For those who don't like Boris, he can do nothing right. So, But it is undoubtedly a serious gamble that he is taking. Um, as you say, I certainly hope it works out. Um, the interesting thing here in Ireland over the next couple of weeks will be um, the hospitality sector is looking for full reopening. It, it is in renegotiation or sorry, negotiations with the government at the moment to try and achieve some sort of um, opening for the sector. Uh, but the Taoiseach has sort of said that the NEFED, and well, it's clear anyway, that NEFED is totally against indoor dining and hospitality opening up. So the next couple of weeks here are going to be very interesting again. Um, I, I suspect the government will find it very difficult to go against NEFED because it doesn't have a strong track record in that regard. So I guess we're going to be subject to ongoing lockdown and restrictions here. 
And to me, the biggest question mark at this stage is over the reopening of international travel on the 19th of July. Um, it's not clear uh, that the government has the system in place to deal with that in terms of the um, vaccine certificates and so on. Uh, but it's also, I think, interesting in the last 24 hours, the Germans have opened up air travel to Brits. Yeah, so absolutely. There's all yeah. sorts of curiosities and uh, stark differences uh, around the world and, and in, interesting uh, policy choices that are, are quite difficult to explain. Just why the Germans have changed their minds, they, they don't say. And as with so much to do with COVID, we get these policy pronouncements without fully understanding why these decisions have been made. And Because if the original intention behind the German decision to ban British visitors was the, the prevalence of the virus in the UK and worries about Delta in particular, I mean, that's all got worse since they made that decision. Nothing's gotten better. Nothing has changed that would lead you to think that they would change their minds. So, and the, so the only way I could rationalise that decision, and it is it's just my rationalisation, is that they've, um, and there is some logic to this, they've decided that de Delta is clearly there in Germany. It's, it's growing exponentially. It's going to become the dominant strain very, very quickly. And whether or not British visitors come or go is, neither, is now that the Delta variant is present in the country is, neither, is almost neither here nor there. That has some intuitive appeal for me. Other than that, that's all I got. It's kind of clear that a, a lot of governments are deciding that, number one, the relationship between infection rates and hospitalisation is breaking down because of the vaccine programme. And secondly, it, it seems clear that a lot of governments are now doing the cost-benefit analysis piece more seriously. Um, and a lot of that, of course, is being driven by internal political pressures and popular pressures. There seems to be a decision made at this stage that the costs of ongoing serious restrictions um, outweigh any possible benefits that will be gained from that. So it's um, it's an interesting and a very confusing picture at the moment. And I have no doubt, despite our desire to move away from COVID as a topic on this podcast, um, I think it will continue to dominate our conversation over the coming weeks because there's still quite a distance to go you saw some interesting stuff on brexit um from the ons the office for national statistics in the uk today tell us about it there isn't much to like about covid but one of the things that it does do is it's, it has stopped us to an extent at least talking about brexit but brexit has been bubbling away in the background and something almost every day comes along to make you go, wow, uh, this thing is just going to go on and on and on. It's it, it's a really never-ending process, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. We've had trade, we've discussed trade data on this podcast and the plight of the fishermen, what's going to happen to farmers as a result of free trade deals with countries like Australia and future trade deals with countries like the United States. But the latest Brexit snippet is about EU citizens in the UK. They were a, a pawn during a lot of the negotiations, sadly. The way it ended up was that the, they were to apply for registration to become permanent residents of the UK, and the deadline for that has just passed. And during the Brexit referendum itself and in the subsequent toing and froing about the rights of these people resident in the United Kingdom from the EU, the, national the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, 
figure for how many of them were was regularly quoted at around three, three and a half million. And it was taken as gospel. Demographers, economists use this data to make all sorts of analyses and, and projections. A deadline has just passed. It turns out there was nearly twice as many as they thought, because we think something approaching six million people from the EU, that's more than the population of Ireland, have applied for registration. And this speaks to a number of things. The first thing is that immigration was always a very highly charged debate in the UK, um, still is to an extent, and they couldn't even count how many people were here. So they, they couldn't, even, couldn't even get their arms around the size of the issue. I won't call it a problem because I don't think it is a problem, but they couldn't get their arms around the size of the question. Nobody knows how many have in fact have gone home. So there could have been more than 6 million. There's, nobody's got any idea at all about how many people in the last few years have decided to up sticks and go back because of Brexit, perhaps because of COVID as well. And if there were, and there were 6 million people here um, over the last while from the EU, the number one, two and three reasons they were here was for jobs. And there's all sorts of different ways you can look at that. But one very important way is that the economy needed these people. They wouldn't have been given these jobs otherwise. And particular sectors of the economy really needed these people. So if you think about food, if you think about the meatpacking industry, for example, 60% of employees in the meatpacking business in the UK are foreign, or at least they were until they started to go home. And as a result of them going home or just disappearing into other sectors, there's not just a job shortage in an employee shortage in meatpacking. People in that industry are describing it as an employee jobs crisis. And that job shortage is popping up in all sorts of other sectors as well. But food appears to be a real problem. Now, this is another one that's going to come back to haunt the whole Brexit process, because it because those orders of magnitude, six million people, mean that the structure of the UK labour market is going to change a lot. And we don't know which way it's going to go. If it is the case that that will just simply raise the wages of all these people who are in things like meatpacking, and we perhaps should applaud that from an inequality perspective. That means that the prices of all foodstuffs in the UK are about to go up a lot because they're going to pay people working in that industry more. You might think that's a good thing. I have my sympathies for that. But I'm quite sure that the Brexiteers didn't plan on that happening. If they're not prepared to pay more for their food, they're going to have to get their cheap workers from somewhere. And they're either going to have to open the door back to the EU again or find them from somewhere else. So, so this one also will run and run. And I'm watching this particular set of statistics with interest. And it is going to have and is having a dramatic effect on the UK economy. But at least we are back to talking about the economy, Jim. And there are, there are lots of things going on in terms of data coming out. One thing that I noticed has happened in the last few days, which does always have a big economic impact, is the oil price. What's going on there? Negotiations have been going on within OPEC, the oil and petroleum exporting countries, um, about restricting, sorry, about expanding oil production to try and get prices back down because they have increased quite dramatically since this time last year. And that, of course, is feeding into the global inflationary spiral. Uh, but they failed to reach agreement over the last day or two. And West, Tex West Texas oil, for example, has hit the highest level in over six years. Brent crude this morning is trading at over $76 a barrel. That's an increase of 48% year to date, whereas West Texas is up 56% year to date. So um, oil prices rising quite strongly. 
because of OPEC failure to in- expand production. Uh, perhaps that will be sorted over the coming days. But the Jim, I can ask you a question. Jim, I got to ask you a question here. Um, uh, I, I used to be called an economist, so I can now tell jokes about economists. But don't you? I think you still call yourself one. Don't, don't economists talk about rational markets and, and, and markets being the most efficient way of allocating scarce resources and all that kind of stuff? Wasn't it only about a year ago that oil prices were actually negative? How can you describe the oil price, which is perhaps one of the more competitive markets? I know we're talking about a cartel there, but it is a, you know there are lots of non-cartel members competing with OPEC. It's the most analysed market in the world. Everybody is forever trying to estimate the supply and demand for oil. And yet you can get the oil price going from negative to the highest it has been in years in the blink of an eye. Surely that's enough to turn anybody into a Marxist. Well, Chris, anybody who believes in rational markets, uh, particularly in the context of oil, um, is stark raven loony. Um, It is not a rational market. It is a market that is subject to all sorts of economic forces. You know, clearly, when global economic growth picks up, demand for oil picks up. When global economic activity slows down, demand for oil falls and and the price falls accordingly. Um, But then you have all of these political influences as well. You know, OPEC, what controls between 50 and 60 percent, I think, of global oil production. But then you have um, the behavior of Iran, Iraq, Russian oil, all of these political developments that also have a huge impact. So oil it may be the most analyzed market in the world, but it certainly ain't rational. And it is certainly subject to forces that um, are very difficult to predict and understand. But what happened at the beginning or this time last year, a little bit earlier, uh, number one, when COVID struck and the global economic prognosis deteriorated in a dramatic fashion, uh, the, the market conclusion was that the demand for oil would fall and oil prices fell. And at the same time, There was stuff going on in financial markets whereby oil contracts were expiring. There was no liquidity in the market and oil contracts actually settled at negative prices. But that was a really, really um, sort of a bizarre market event rather than anything fundamental happening. And once those contracts unwound, oil prices started to come back. And that's what we've continued to see since then. But up at you know, 70 to $80 a barrel, you know, oil isn't too far off the highs of recent years. Um, it will have implications for inflation because, you know, energy is still a big deal everywhere in terms of dry, driving inflation. So um, I'm not sure what your barb at Economist is trying to achieve, Chris, but... Um, trying to wind you up, mate. If you, um, if you believe in rational markets. Well, I certainly believe that our petrol prices are going to be going up. I do wonder why anybody ever bothers trying to forecast anything, let alone the oil price, given what we've just given what we've just said. There's been some more economic data. It's the beginning of the month, the first week of the month. As always, there's a lot of survey data and in particular purchasing manager survey data out on both sides of the Atlantic. I don't know whether you've seen these PMIs from Europe, Jim, but they are very strong in general. There's a mixed bag across different countries. But at the Eurozone level, the Eurozone economy, as reported by the IHS Market Composite Purchasing Managers Survey, it's an important piece of economic data. It's forward-looking. The Eurozone economy expanded at its fastest rate in 15 years over the course of the last month, driven by both services and manufacturing. Ireland was slightly down on May, unlike some other countries, 
but it was still the best in the Eurozone in terms of growth. Spain is another country worth mentioning here because that's showing the fastest growth, according to this survey at least, since the year 2000, a couple of decades ago. In terms of jobs growth, that all-important component of these surveys, Ireland, Germany and Spain were the three countries in the, at the top of the employment growth league table. So that's a bit of good news. And we, we did actually on our last podcast promise some good news, uh, some optimism. So that, that that's room for some, some cheer at least. The Eurozone services survey, services much bigger part of the, the economy than manufacturing, fastest since July 2007. And again, led by Ireland and in second place, Spain. Surveys have also reported labour shortages. We've talked about that before. And it had the highest service sector price inflation component in over 20 years. So the the old inflation theme is still bubbling away there in the background. This could be the Eurozone economy just doing what the US did earlier in the year and bouncing back in a way post-COVID. We hope it's post-COVID anyway. And it remains to be seen whether these remarkable growth rates and indeed the price pressures will persist. But overall, notwithstanding that that inflation news, it was a good set of numbers, wasn't it? It was a good set of numbers, yeah. Um, but it, And one number you didn't mention there was that Eurozone retail sales in May uh, grew very strongly by 4.6%. And that's because with economies reopening, you know, you're going to get this pent-up demand coming back into the system. Uh, But in the United States, the services manufacturing index actually fell from 64 to 60.1. So a little bit of weakness coming through there. To be honest, looking at all of these economic indicators everywhere, I think they're mirroring the sort of confused discussion we had at the beginning of this uh, podcast about COVID-19. You know, there's so much uncertainty revolving around COVID-19 that that is definitely being reflected in economic sentiment and in real economic activity. But, you know, you'd, you'd have to think that there's still the basis there for a really strong global rebound uh, based on pent up demand coming back into the system with the obvious caveat about Delta variant and the impact that might have. That said, of course, Jim, the equivalent surveys from the United States, which have been out in the last day, they were a bit weaker than expected, uh, both the manufacturing and services bit of those surveys. So the, the US economy is still growing, but just not quite as fast as perhaps previously hoped for, which again is consistent with the, the idea that you get this initial surge and then things start to level off a little bit. Chris, I saw in the context of the United States, I saw a piece from um, Morgan Stanley basically saying that it's, it ain't going to get any better for the United States. Don't um, get me started, Jim. Don't get me started. Well, I won't get you started. React. This piece in, in the Financial Times this week was written by somebody, I, I don't know the chap, so I don't want to be too rude. He has the title Morgan Stanley Chief Global Strategist. Uh, for my sins, I had that title once a long time ago. Very grand, very pompous, very pretentious. I'm not sure that any... Real people do these sorts of jobs anyway. I'm surprised they still exist, actually, because they are rather pointless jobs. And this article reinforced my prejudice about it being a pointless job. I was wondering whether actually this person does exist and it wasn't written by a sort of primitive artificial intelligence bot because it just was co- contained lots of very hackneyed phrases, cliches, and almost random words struck, stuck together. The title of the thing is that this is as good as it gets for the US economy. 
And this speaks to my point about forecasting. How anybody could could say that? Because the the the, the truth, the analytical, intellectual truth, is nobody knows um, what the future for the U.S. or indeed any other economy holds. And to make these kinds of broad headline grabbing statements is, I think, just designed to to grab those headlines rather than to say anything meaningful or necessarily to say anything that it has any basis. And it's full of phrases like booms are killed off by complacency. Now, I suppose that has a sort of superficial plausibility to it. But when you actually think about what that sentence contains, it's completely empty of any meaning or content whatsoever. And so another insight this chap offers is that easy money threatens the dollar. Okay, we've had easy money in the United States for how long, Jim, now? For about a, a decade. 10 years? A decade, at, yeah. at least a decade. Yeah. Has the dollar collapsed? No. No. Um, is there easy money elsewhere in the world? Yes. So on that logic, every country in the world that's practicing easy money, their currency is going to collapse. Absolutely. Okay. And we know arithmetically that is that not happens, possible. You could have summarized one third of this article with one word. You'd have to do it with a sort of an emoji of, of a somebody screaming or in horror because the word debt was repeated a lot. Apparently, there's a lot of it around. I didn't know this. Did you? <laughs> I um, certainly did. Chris, you're you're starting to delve into some strange thought processes here, um, talking about bots writing this rather than a real person. Well, you, that's how that's how poor I thought it was. You, yes, indeed. But you you wrote a blog for our Substack account yesterday. Um, I'm still scratching my head about it. Could you explain what you were trying to tell us? It was inspired by one of our readers, actually, one of a person that quite regularly makes nice comments about um, the other hand. And it was essentially saying that he thinks that what's going on, particularly in Ireland, but I guess elsewhere with respect to the policies that we know and love and have discussed so many times about COVID, um, that it's beginning to feel like a Monty Python sketch. And so that led me immediately to speculate about a favourite theme of mine, which is that um, what this, what we're living in, the world, the universe, is in fact a computer simulation. It's a favourite theme of Elon Musk, the, the boss of Tesla, and it's also something that one or two philosophers have been pushing for some time. Um, I, I don't buy it, actually. I don't think it is a computer simulation. I think it's a, it's a game. It's a, rea- it's a reality TV show, a bit like Love Island, that sort of thing. And that we're, we're just the unwitting participants in this game show um, for, for, for aliens. And that if you think about the last few years, we've had Donald Trump, we've had Brexit, we've had the existence of covid We've got the inevitability of a Sinn Féin government in Ireland. I mean, this is the Christmas special, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, it would appear like that. Absolutely. No doubt. So can, can we move on to something slightly yeah, we, more serious? Chris, you, we, we, we've discussed what's happening at a global economy level and, I, and oil prices. And I think uh, we conclude there, there is quite a level of confusion out there, which is reflecting quite a level of confusion in relation to the various things that are happening around the world um, in relation to COVID at the moment. But meanwhile, you know, equities continue to do what equities have been doing for quite some time. Um, the NASDAQ and the Danish markets, for example, hit all-time highs in the last 24 hours. Um, there's a little bit of weakness in Europe this week based on oil prices mainly, but also on, <clears throat> on our fears about the Delta variant. But year to date, the FTSE is up almost 11%. 
Um, all European markets are up something similar. The S&P in the States is up 16%. So, and bond yields have actually come back down a little bit. So markets are incredibly relaxed and dare I say it, quite buoyant at the moment. Um, yeah, a lot of people a lot of people think those equity returns are just taking the equity markets further into bubble territory. There are prominent investors who think that this is just another bubble waiting to be but waiting but to be. They've been saying that for two years. Oh, they've been saying it for a lot longer than that, Jim. Yeah. And if they keep on saying it for long enough, eventually they'll be proved right. Because one thing that we do know is that equities at some point in the cycle, um, quite regularly, every few years or so, go down 20, 30, sometimes 40 percent. That that does lie in our future. That kind of equity move is definitely out there. Whether it's this week, next year, next decade, I have no idea. And neither does anybody else. That's my point again about forecasting. But it is true that on the basis of traditional established ways of assessing equity market value, they do look expensive. In, well, the states in particular, America and particular American stocks, we know and love them well, are looking somewhat overpriced. Uh, and that's as much as I, I would be prepared to say. It wouldn't be surprise me if they came back a bit. It wouldn't surprise me if they continue to go up. That's the nature of, of, of stock markets, I'm afraid. But yeah, there are plenty of people out there now who are saying that this the stock market is, is, is nuts and it's almost as bad as it was in March 2000. Yeah, it, it does strike me. And, and maybe one says this at every point in time, but it certainly does strike me at the moment that the whole investment environment is just so incredibly uncertain. You have official interest rates at record low levels and set to remain there. You have government bond yields, albeit a little bit higher than they have been over the last 12 months, are still close to historically low levels. Um, you have property markets around the world, um, in a lot of countries at least, on fire at the moment. And then, of course, you have equity markets doing uh, what you've just described, you know, at incredibly high levels. So for an investor, and then, of course, over all of that is what's been happening on the cryptocurrency front, for example, you know, with Bitcoin um, experiencing some dramatic price movements. Uh, it's a it's a challenging, uncertain, difficult equity or investment environment, full stop. And I think where this starts to become really serious is that if I was somebody contemplating retirement in the next year or two, uh, the question is, what does one do at the moment if you're overweight equities? Do you stay there? Obviously, given all of these things we've described, um, it's a risky thing to do. But if you move out of equities, um, you're going to kill off basically your returns and perhaps um, endure a significant opportunity cost from being out of markets. So it's it's not straightforward. No, it's not. And um, But equities never are, Jim. Um, investment markets never are. We're not regulated to give investment advice, but um, I do think that this is as, probably as difficult as I've known it for a very long time. But that said, there are things that, that can be done in, in markets. There, there are things that can sensibly be done with respect to equities that they're they're not so they're not so expensive outside the United States, for example. I think there are lots of interesting opportunities, and um, particularly in emerging markets. That's my own uh, view. Um, that's where I've actually got some of my own money at the moment. The one thing I would say about equities is is going back to that thing. You, you've got if you, if if you're in equities, you've got to expect those, those big hits that I described earlier on. And it, some investment houses say that you've got to have a long term time horizon of at least three to five years. I think that's absolute hogwash. You've got to have a, a ten-year horizon for equities. If you're if you're retiring next year and you need money next year, you shouldn't be in equities. 
I, I, that that would be a personal view. Um, if you, if you if you're retiring next year and you're planning for, to live another thirty or forty years, that's a different kettle of fish with respect to your asset allocation. That really is the subject, I think, of several podcasts over over over, over a, a long period of time. Investor investor education and proper investing. Uh, he says modestly. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about today is that I know you're very exercised, um, almost as exercised as I was about that Chief Global Strategist article. There was an article in the Irish Times this week that I think when I spoke to you last, I could almost see the steam coming out of your ears. You've got a by-election in Dublin, I believe, at the moment? Yeah, the Dublin-based South by-election takes place on Thursday, and it follows the resignation from politics of Owen Murphy, who was the Minister for Housing in the last government. But Una Mullally wrote a piece in the Irish Times yesterday, which I found quite extraordinary. Um, she was basically having a very personalised go at the Fine Gael candidate, James Gagan. She said that um, Fine Gael, by running him, were consolidating existing privilege and they were serving those who already have it. Um, she said that James Gagan has had no impact on public life. She said that you couldn't make him up as a candidate, that he is a cliched South Dublin accent, that his parents and grandparents were both Supreme Court judges and that he has run a superficial campaign based on the brand of bland nothingness. And she then concluded by saying that on merit, he trails behind, I think, six other women, female candidates that are running in the election. Um, I thought it was an extraordinary personalised attack on a politician. Given, I mean, I would say one of the reasons Owen Murphy got out of politics and the reason why a lot of people are getting out of politics now is because of the abuse they're taking from many different sources. And journalists like Una Mullally would frequently write about you know, mental health and the need to be careful about abusing people and so on. And yet she turns around and does something like this. I found it quite extraordinary. And I guess what really annoyed me, I have to declare an interest here. I know James Gagan, he is a barrister, but he's also a local councillor who works incredibly hard. And if anybody looks at his record in Dublin City Council, and you can get the minutes of the meetings. In fact, you can get video recordings of those meetings because of COVID. And you just see he's incredibly hardworking. Um, there's nothing here that reeks of privilege. I mean, I, I think it's just extraordinary that you can attack somebody on the basis that they come from a privileged background, that they have educated themselves, that they are doing well in life. Um, I, I think it's mad stuff. It really annoyed me. But I, as I say, uh, I have to declare an interest here. I know the guy. I like the guy. I respect the guy. I think he would make a fantastic TD, to be honest. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going on at the moment, not just in Ireland, but particularly in the UK, and you can see strands of it in the United States as well, is that we are reacting to what a lot of people have been saying about something called meritocracy. Um, Harvard philosophers have been writing books about it. I recommend one by Michael Sandel, actually called The Myth of Meritocracy. And people explore this theme in all sorts of different ways and uh, whether or not meritocracy was a good idea in the first place, whether or not we've actually had one. Um, but now that we have winner takes all, is meritocracy being taken too far? All these sorts of issues, which would, again, merit a podcast in their own regard. But I think one upshot of this debate and the way in which people are having a go at privilege, 
you could even bring critical race theory into it if you want and talk about white privilege and all this kind of stuff is that I think we're just building an anti-meritocracy. You know, only certain types of people are now allowed to succeed. And it doesn't actually matter whether you're any good at your job anymore, whether you do actually have merit. If you if you have a whiff of this so-called privilege about you, you're going to get these journalists, these writers, so-called writers, having a go at you. The only thing that surprises me about this one, Jim, is that you've actually read an article by Una Malali. I can't imagine a more unlikely scenario. Uh, yeah, it's the first one I've read in years, um, and I, I read it because I read it this morning actually because there was a lot of comment on social media last night um, for and against what she was saying. I, I just think, Chris, it's extraordinary, and I know you have been a columnist for the newspaper, but that a serious newspaper that describes itself as the paper of record would allow this sort of drivel to be written beats me. Well, let's leave it there, Jim. I think that was a great discussion over a range of topics. Um, it certainly beats talking about COVID for half an hour. That's, that's for sure. So see you next time. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.